Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Hi everyone, good to be with you today as we finish off our Who Are We series, where we've been looking at a load of different images that the Bible gives for the church. And we've been learning, which is so helpful this summer, that we're not defined as a church by where we meet and we're not defined by how we meet but we're defined by who we are in our DNA, who Jesus has called us to be. And it's really important to remember that as the way that we're meeting and where we're meeting changes again from one week from today, that those things are at best peripheral to the core of who we are, the essence of what it is to be the church, which is that we're things like salt, light, yeast, a body, foreigners, an army, a temple, And today we're going to think about one more, which is that we are a bride, or much more specifically, the bride of Jesus Christ. We as the church are the bride of Christ. Just let that sink in. It's not true of us individually. It's really important. It gets a bit weird, doesn't it? If I say I'm the bride of Christ or I say you, specifically you, are the bride of Christ, can all become a bit strange and uh, take us down some unusual routes. So that's not true, but it's true that we, the church, the people of God through the ages and across the globe, we are seen by the Son of God and said and declared by the Son of God to not just be his friends or his servants, not simply his playthings or his pawns to move around to accomplish the task, but we are his beloved bride. And if you want to know what passage we're going to be looking at today, we will dip into a few verses really specifically. But really, we're looking at the Bible today because the whole sweep of scripture is screaming this truth to us from the first few pages right to the last few pages that there will be a bride for the Son of God. Let's start at the beginning. In the first few pages of the Bible, there's a wedding and the bridegroom is a man called Adam and he's joined to Eve. And interestingly, at various points in the Bible, Adam is referred to as a son of God. It's like we're meant to notice that he's a bit of a type of Jesus. He's the first attempt at a a, a faithful human being walking the earth. He's a son of God, and he will have a bride. And so he uh, chooses Eve, and he writes a poem, and it's all very lovely and they become one. And the writer of Genesis commenting on this, he says this, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, fast forward a lot of time and a lot of pages and you get to a letter in the New Testament called Ephesians. And I'm actually gonna be preaching on this passage in a couple of weeks time. Uh, when we're back at King Edwards. And Paul directly quotes from that verse right back from the beginning in Genesis when he's teaching about marriage. But then really crucially, he offers this little line of commentary that unlocks so much of the Bible's teaching about marriage and even about life in general when you see what this marriage thing was really always meant to be about. So he says, as the scriptures say, A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. But here's the commentary. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. 
He's saying, remember that prototype marriage way back at the start where a son of God was going to have a bride. Well, you know that and you know every other marriage that's ever taken place, they were all intended, some of them fall and fell horribly short because of uh, toxic relationships or abuse or lovelessness or a load of other uh, things like that. So I'm not being glib and saying all marriages just show this really clearly. But every marriage was intended to show, was designed to show off, to be an arrow to point to the relationship between Christ and the church. And therefore, through the Bible, it is not surprising that God is regularly described as a bridegroom, a husband, as the one who will woo his people and betroth them to himself. And the people of God are regularly described as a bride or a wife or as being in a covenant relationship of love with God. And it's not surprising again, is it, that when Jesus then turns up, another son of God looking for a bride, that the first place he reveals his glory is a wedding, the wedding at Cana. And he turns, if you remember, water into wine. And we like that story, don't we? Because like Jesus is really amazing because he can turn stuff into other stuff. So we should follow him. That's definitely in there. And we love it because he makes wine. And so when our friends say Christianity is really boring, we can say, did you know that the first miracle was that Jesus made wine? And then it sounds like it's not that boring and that's exciting. So there's that in there as well. But I think that story is teaching us something much more profound. Think about it. Who is it that was meant to guarantee that there was enough wine for the whole community? Who is it that was the host of this party and was meant to be welcoming his bride into the community and drawing everyone together in this wonderful, unforgettable celebration? It was the bridegroom. And yet the bridegroom has massively dropped the ball. Absolute clangor, mucked up on the wine list, hasn't got enough and is ready not only to be a bit embarrassed, but to be thrown into community wide shame because of his failings. And it's like Jesus steps forward and quietly and humbly says, it's OK, the true bridegroom is here. I'll sort it. You failed as a bridegroom. I am the true bridegroom. And it's no wonder then that fast forward again a fair bit of time and a fair few pages to the closing moments of the whole of scripture and the closing moments of the whole of history that we're still looking forward to. We get a little glimpse that Jesus is at another wedding and this time not just as a, a wine making guest but this time as the true bridegroom. It's the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast as it says in the New Living Translation. And the people of God are there too. Uh, I'm going to be there by God's grace if I persevere in my following of Jesus. And so will you, not just as a guest, like bumbling along to the Macarena or trying to fit in, but as one little part of the glorious people of God who are dressed not in their uh, nice dress from H&M or their chinos and brown shoes that they've got out of the cupboard after COVID, but instead dressed as a bride for her husband, because we, the people of God, are the bride to Jesus, the bridegroom. From beginning to end, the Bible is saying the son of God, be it Adam at the start, or as we see, that was pointing to Jesus, will have a bride. And it's the church. Hallelujah. Now, if that's true, which it is, uh, I want you to discuss it. What does it mean for us today? Maybe split it up into two questions. Uh, you could think about what does it mean for our relationship to Jesus, that we are his bride? And what does it mean for our individual relationship to the church, 
that the church is the bride of Christ. Think, chew, chat, press play when you're ready. Well, I want to share a couple of thoughts on each question before we're done, starting with what does this say about our relationship to Jesus? Firstly, I think it speaks of passion. We are to have passion for him. Different truths in the Bible are used to invoke different responses in the people of God. And so the truth, we're an army, inspires a dogged obedience to the commands of Jesus. The truth, we're a body, provokes commitment to doing the works of Jesus as his hands and feet. The truth, we are salt and light and we are yeast, provokes a kind of uh, we should affect change for Jesus and influence tasteless, rotting, dark, flat places with the salt and light and yeast of God. And all that is true and right, but we need to also hear that we are a bride, not merely dispatched by Jesus or sent by Jesus or scattered by Jesus, but deeply loved by Jesus and cherished and sung over and rejoiced in and wanted and pursued by him. And in return, the response that that's to evoke in us is that we are not only to obey him, not only to bring his presence to others, but we are to be madly in love with him. We are to think of him when our minds wander in quiet moments. We are to long for him, yearn for him. We're to miss him when he seems to not be as near to us. We are to be full of words to describe our affection for him. We are to be devoted to him. We're to return to our first love and do the silly little radical things that we did when we first loved him. And people might look at us and say, oh, how naive, young love, when they really grow up, they won't be like that. And we're to disregard those comments because he's our bridegroom and he's the lover of our soul. And so we're to express, even in ways that are laughable to the world, our heartfelt passion for Jesus. He's the bridegroom and we're his bride and so we passionately love him. As I was preparing for this I was reading the uh, book of the Bible called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon which is a heated sensuous poetic exploration of the love between a bridegroom and a bride and we know it's highly poetic because uh, you get these very crazy descriptions of uh, the bridegroom and the bride, which would end up if you drew them with like seven doves for teeth and 11 pomegranates for uh, kneecaps. And it's all very interesting. And um, so it's poetic. It's not to be literally applied verse by verse. And it can get a bit odd if you read it like that. But rather, it's a poem that's meant to capture and draw out the affection, the passion, the longing of two lovers. And structurally, if you've never read it or you haven't read it for a while, go and have a look. There's this amazing back and forth between the, the, the he and the her of the Song of Songs. And he says something to her and then she responds and he calls back and she calls back again as they seek to outdo one another in passion and honour and tender affection. And my view is that that bit of the Bible is definitely about the human marriage relationship. And so it's right to read it in that way, not to apply it verse by verse. It can get a bit odd, uh, really odd, really odd. Um, but it's definitely poetically meant to inspire a sense of longing and love in a human marriage. But as we've already seen, all teaching in the Bible that's about marriage is really just pointing us to what's true about Christ and his church. And so this 
beautiful, passionate, intimate exchange of loving affection between the him and the her of Song of Songs is really showing us something that's to be true about Christ and the church, that we are to pursue intimate, heartfelt, affectionate, back and forth relationship with the lover of our souls, Jesus. And so I want to ask us, please, can we not become too functional as a community? Please, can we not become a bit lopsided and misshaped in that we're very passionate about doggedly obeying him, but we end up hardening our hearts to the bridegroom? Can we almost embarrassingly passionately pursue him? Can we want him afresh? Can we desire him again? Can we yearn for him? Can we enjoy him? Can we pour out our loving praise to him? That's the first thing, passion. The second thing is loyalty. We are to have a faithful, unadulterous loyalty to Jesus. A load of the bridal language in the Bible is not brought out at lovely little moments. It's much more common that it's brought out at the horror movie, head in your hands, car crash, what are the people of God doing type moments. The bridal language is brought out not to say, it's so beautiful how you love me, saith the Lord, but rather when God's people are straying and they're not loving him. And God effectively calls to them over and over and says, you're cheating on me. You running off to other gods and sinning then and now, by the way, is not just idolatry, it's adultery. Look at Isaiah 57, verse 7 and 8, talking about their false worship. He says, you have committed adultery on every high mountain. That's not meaning that they've broken their marriage vows on a walk in the mountains. It's about the false worship places that they'd set up. And he's using this analogy that idolatry is adultery. Look, he says, there you have worshipped idols and have been unfaithful to me. You've put pagan symbols on your doorposts and behind your doors. You've left me and climbed into bed with these detestable gods. You have committed yourselves to them. And Paul, similarly, in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 3, he's trying to call the church back from sin. He's trying to get the church to repent from their wrong living and wrong loving. And look at the language he chooses. He says, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. He's saying you're meant to be a pure bride to one husband Jesus. You're meant to be loyal to him as the people of God, but you're straying and I can see that you're going to stray and I can see that you're straying. Do not leave him. Do not stray. Don't commit adultery on God because he's the greatest bridegroom. Don't fall for that trick, the age old trick that God doesn't want what's best for you. Stay loyal to him, stay loyal to Jesus. And so I say to us, let us not bow down to other gods as a church community. Let us stay ruthlessly, faithfully loyal to our ruthlessly, faithfully loyal bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We're running out of time, but two things for our relationship as individuals to the church. First thing, Jesus people 
are church people. I had this horrible experience that happened to me a few years ago in my old job. It happened on quite a few occasions. I was a student worker supporting the Christian Union, which was a role I really loved in lots of ways. And uh, that's a, a society at the university that I still seek to support as much as I can alongside other student groups uh, on campus doing really great work. So they weren't the problem. Um, but uh, when I was a student worker with them, I'd get to know some of the students really, really well on campus, away from my home life and my family life. And uh, then a, a few of those students would join Church Central. This is a long time ago and I'm not naming names, um, but they joined Church Central and they would bound up to me and they'd already have a relationship with me, but they wouldn't know Ruth. And regularly, over and over again, to the point where it was like predictable and we could see it coming, people would come up to me and want to pick my brains about some talk I'd given, but they would literally stone cold blank Ruth, like not even acknowledge that there was another human being sitting in the seat next to me. One time I was sat with Ruth chatting after the service, talking about something that had happened in the meeting, and it was quite an important conversation. And someone came up, pulled up a chair, and started saying something to me about my talk, um, in a previous meeting and literally didn't even say hello to her. And Ruth was much more mature than me and she could take it. But I still am enraged by this. I find it absolutely ridiculous and totally pathetic. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the story was, but I tell you what, someone coming up to me and wanting to impress me with their theological musings whilst ignoring my bride, completely unimpressive, very unacceptable to me. And somebody coming up and wanting to say that they're interested in me and what I have to say and how I can talk to them, but not even acknowledging my bride or actually being really rude to my bride. How do you think that makes me feel? You can see how it makes me feel still. Here's the thing. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. How do you think Jesus feels if we come to him when our our interest in him and oh, have a little chat with him and we ignore his bride or we're dismissive of his bride or we, we have our little theological questions, but we don't take care of his bride. How do you think that makes him feel? Do we think he's OK with that? He's certainly not because he's a good bridegroom and he says that he would even bleed out on the cross for his bride. And so does that mean that we can't ever offer critique for the church? No, of course not. My next point is all about how to do that really well. Does that mean that we have to be fine with everything in the church? Of course not. I'm not. You're not. None of us are. Jesus isn't. So obviously not. But it does mean that if we're a Jesus person and we believe that the church is his bride, we're going to be a church person as well. Final point. Jesus people pursue a beautiful church. I don't know if you know the word deconstruction. Uh, this might be a really well-known phrase to you. Some of you might not have thought about this, but you'll know about it even if you don't know its name. It's this trend occurring in the Western church, particularly right now, uh, that is a movement of people who are seeking to call out and dismantle unhelpful, unbiblical teachings or practices or structures within the way church has been done and the way that theology has been taught and lived out. And um, I don't know what you think I'm going to say about that, 
Um, it's really such a broad movement that it's very hard to offer any coherent comment on it at all because um, it's kind of like saying, what do you think of places, Rich? Um, what do you think of deconstruction? Well, it's so broad that you can't really say anything unless you know more of what we're talking about. Except to say this, if deconstruction is understood as the process by which we call out error and hypocrisy and false practices and unhelpful emphases in the people of God, then it ain't a new thing. It's a biblical thing and it's a brilliant thing. Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets in the Old Testament were always deconstructing. They were saying, we've got this wrong. We have strayed. We have missed it. And we need to tear this thing down. And you've got to change in this way. People of God, we are way off. And John the Baptist picks up the baton into the New Testament with his repent message. We're getting it wrong. Turn around. And Jesus himself is the greatest deconstructor in all of history. He goes into the house of God, the temple, his father's house, and he literally quite physically and aggressively deconstructs some stuff. He says, my father's house is not like this. Get out. It's to be like this instead. And so I'm tearing this little thing down because it's not to be done like this. And you could argue that Paul's letters are really exercises in deconstruction. Paul is uh, trying to pick apart and undo and reset false practices or theologies in the churches that he himself has started a few years before. But they've gone off piste and they've got it skew if. So Ephesians, as we've been seeing, he uh, is deconstructing the division between Jew and Gentile. In Colossians, it's people were saying you have to have this special secret knowledge to really experience the fullness of God. And he's saying, no, you just need to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians, he's deconstructing their thoughts around uh, sex and spiritual gifts. And it had all got pretty crazy. And he's coming in to unpick it and say, this isn't right. Let's sort it out. In Galatians, they're misapplying the Old Testament teaching to be circumcised. And that was being totally recklessly used in the New Testament context, way out of line with what scripture is teaching. And he's there going, no, how have you got this wrong? You fools, stop it. And if we think about the letters to the churches at the start of Revelation, Jesus himself is speaking to the church and he's not just towing the party line or going along with everything, is he? It's not a little pat on the shoulder. He's seeking to tear down what is ugly and unchristian in his church. And so deconstruction, if defined like that, is biblical and Christ-like. But here's the thing. If the heart behind deconstruction is to deconstruct alone, then that's not of God. Because the church, however spotty and skew if and ugly at times and getting it wrong the church is the bride of Christ and God maintains a loyal faithfulness even to the church in its least faithful demonstrations the, ch the church is still his bride and he still bled for her and he still has a commitment to her and so if we're just aiming at deconstructing and tearing down that's not deconstructing that's destroying and that is not of God. What the prophets always did, what the New Testament letters always do is they offer a better way. They want to build in things to the people of God. Yes, they tear down, but then they build up and they pour in their strength and their godliness and their love and their hope and their faith. And, and they teach the church to pursue justice and purity and return the people of God to who they were meant to be. 
deconstruction in the Bible is paving the way for a reconstruction underpinned all along with a godly commitment to see the bride of Christ flourishing. So yes to critique in the church, that is biblical. Yes to unlearning unbiblical ways of being. But always, if we're Jesus people, from a desire to build up the church because she's his bride and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, We've got to build up, reform, revive, reignite, restore, rebuild, because the church is his bride. And in the end, if we're not for her, we're against him. It's that important. If we're not for her, we're against him. Or put more positively, he is for her. And so are we. He poured out everything for her. Will we? He loves her and pursues her flourishing even when it's hard, will we? Because, as I'm landing now, it's another new start, isn't it? And we're off to King Edwards, and we're starting a new term. Will we love the church? Let's be passionate and loyal to Jesus together. And Jesus people watching this, let's be church people, and let's be pursuing her flourishing with everything we've got. In Jesus' name, amen.